Living here on the North Shore has given us the opportunity to meet so many amazing people. Two of those people are Chris and Taylor Pierce. And when I learned their story, I really wanted them to come on the podcast. And they're so awesome. They agreed to come on and share their story. In their marriage, they have experienced miscarriages, infertility. They've lost an infant son. And just last year, they lost an eight-year-old son, Griff. And I wanted to really learn from them. I wanted to know, how can I better show up for people when they're going through hard things? And they came on to the podcast and they shared their hearts and they shared their experience and it turned into the most beautiful, beautiful interview. They also share how they continue to march forth, you know, after, after this loss and how they continue to live their lives in a way to honor their sons that have, that have passed away. Hello and welcome to the Family Brand Podcast. My name is Chris. I'm a husband, a father, and an entrepreneur. My name's Melissa, and I am a wife, mother, former nurse turned real estate investor. And we believe the greatest gift you can give your child is a last name that stands for something. Your last name is your family's brand. If you are a parent who wants to raise your child to know who they are, love who they are, and believe in who they are, this show is for you. We promise to bring you real and authentic conversations with parents and experts who are committed to making their family their life's most important work. This show will help you take a stand for your family and to raise your children by design, not default. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Family Brand Podcast. It's actually a historic day here with the Family Brand Podcast because Melissa and I have never interviewed another couple. Yeah. We never, well, we've only interviewed. We have done one other couple, but never someone in person. Yeah. And this is the first time we've ever had. So this is Chris and Taylor Pierce, new friends. We live just down the road from each other. So both in Pupakea on the North shore of Oahu. And here's, here's what's interesting. I feel like I've known Chris and Taylor forever. I don't know if I've ever shared this with them. I've been friends with Richie Norton for years. And so I follow Richie on Instagram. And so I feel like I really like know them and know their family because of how much uh, Richie and his wife, Natalie, who I started following would share about the Pierces so much so that I literally thought that Natalie and Taylor were sisters, like <laughs> real sisters. And I asked Richie one time, I was like, yeah. And Natalie's sister, Taylor Pierce girl, she lives here. And I think he's like, they call each other sisters, but they're, they're just like, they're pretty much sisters, but really great friends. It's funny because Chris actually grew up with Richie. And so they've been friends their whole lives and they're, they're, even weirder is their parents, all the four of them grew up together. So it's kind of a third generation thing, but then Natalie and I are always confused as sisters. So it's funny. I feel like we've surpassed the boys love for each other. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome though. But to have you guys here to like have this come full circle to have, having followed you for years to now oh, awesome. live just down the street from you and have you over. It's really amazing. And it was Melissa's idea after, I think after we had you guys over for dinner, we're like, Melissa said, they'd be amazing guests on the podcast. And I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. We'll let you guys introduce yourselves. Tell us just real quick about your family and then both of your professional, like you guys have some really cool accomplishments. Go for it. No, you go first. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Chris Pierce grew up in San Diego, been out in Hawaii for, I don't know, a long time since 05 come and gone a couple times. Um, professionally, do sports psychology, specifically uh, mental toughness and resilience, and mostly to help people perform at a high level and mostly work with salespeople. And he gets barreled on wave storms. 
I, I do get barreled on wave storms, even with my daughter. Yeah. Took, got my seven-year-old daughter out there. We should like describe what yeah, I'm a, barreled on a wave storm. <laughs> I'm about as like the epitome of a wannabe surfer and Chris is a real surfer. So barreled means like when the wave like barrels over and curls over, would you say it's every surfer's dream at some point to get barreled? Yeah, even even when you're like really good, like you talk to professional surfers, and that's still what they want to like do. Daily goal. You're like riding in the tube, riding in the barrel. Chris does it, and when I say does it on a wave storm, that's a hundred and fifty dollars surfboard that you get at Costco. That's not <laughs> nice or fancy, and ex- so he he's a he's yeah. he's legit. Let's just say that on the surfboard. Well, it's kind of taking like the opposite sides of it, like taking your little girl out on the cheapest board that you learn on but doing things that beginners don't do. It's like, it's like taking a sled out to ski hills. Yeah. Like snowboarding. Yeah. Like, like, honestly. And of course a guy who deals in high performance and resilience would be like, I'm up for that challenge. Yes, yes. Yeah. All right, Taylor, what about you? Um, I'm Taylor Pierce. I was just going to repeat everything you just said. I get my butcher since Oh five. We've got five children. I just recently graduated from Columbia. got my MSW from there. My emphasis was, trauma and grief. And I was on the clinical track with a um, minor in international social welfare. So I spent the last year working with the UN and the UNICEF arm with like programming and stuff internationally with youth programs throughout the world and kind of just a background of last 10 years working in different capacities and social work fields. So Awesome. Kind of me. I do not surf on wave storms. <laughs> I grew up in Utah where there's not an ocean. And oftentimes I'll be out in the water with my kids and they'll say like, mom, it's getting big. You should probably go in. <laughs> so we have different capacities in our family. And by going in, meaning water. You Chris, go to come, the shore. You come paddle me. Get out of the water. Yeah. And by going in, it's like, I'll lay there. And it's like, so much. <laughs> That's so. awesome. I love that mom. It's getting I, big. But I feel like I, I, I rose to the occasion and I taught my kids how to swim and love the water. And now I enjoy flat water in the summer. And then when the waves get big, my kids all go out. Yeah. We're really excited about the changes that are about to happen on the North well, shore. Like and fine. she's like, no, my lake is going away. Yeah. <laughs> my flat water. Changes yeah. being in the fall and winter, the waves get really big. Right. On the North shore. Yeah. On the North shore. Yeah. So. It's and in the summer, they're season. super flat. And that's like my my jam. I love the ocean, like just laying in it. And then the waves get bigger and bigger. And everyone else in my family starts getting excited. And I start crying. <laughs> <laughs> so we enjoy the ocean in different ways. That's awesome. And I think as Melissa and I were talking about, part of the reason we were so excited to have uh, Taylor and Chris on is Taylor's background, mm-hmm. per- personally and professionally, around grief. And then Chris's background personally, professionally around resilience and how those two things actually really oftentimes have a lot to do with each other. And so that's what we wanted to talk about today. And I know Melissa specifically had some thoughts and ideas around talking about grief. Yeah. So we didn't, we haven't even gotten into, into like a lot of what we wanted to focus on today with the Pierces. They have gone through a lot of grief. Like they've had Oh, I'm going to cry. I always cry. Okay. I should have worked here all the time. Too. I was even going to cry just talking, but I'm like, don't talk crying about the ocean. <laughs> it's but, all right. Get it out. But the Pierces have gone through like a lot of really hard things. And I would love, I wanted to have them come on so we could talk about how to show up for P- 
people, like when people close to you are going through hard, hard things, how do you show up for them? It's something that I, in our family, the Smith family, like I want to do better at one of our like family values is Smith's show up for people, but something that, yeah, I want to get better at. And so I thought that the pierces would be perfect to help us, the Smith family and all the listeners with that. So I would love to just, can you tell us a little bit about some of the tragedy and grief? Like, I don't know how to best introduce it, but I'd love to just hear more of your story. Yeah. First of all, I think that's such an amazing value to have just because it's like a conscious effort of showing up. I think showing up for people is hard, right? Like perception is reality. So when you're, when you perceive that people are doing fine or, or that you're not experiencing grief personally yourself, it's hard to know what to do or how to show up for people. So I just want to really commend you guys. I think that's like such a awesome thing to specifically be thinking for your kids. Um, grief, man. <laughs> it's funny this last year. I, so I, I literally was studying grief as I would say we were going through one of the hardest years of our life in grief. I don't know. I mean, we could start back. It's I was, somebody was asking me the other day, like, Oh, so what happened the year before? And then they, and then it was kind of like, da, 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 da. like, I feel like our marriage started out I'm quickly like how far, what do you? Yeah. I mean, we wanted to have kids right away and we were really good at getting pregnant and really bad at staying pregnant. And, and so like miscarriage after miscarriage was kind of how we started our marriage. And, and that in itself is difficult that a lot of people go through and don't know that they know how to talk about it. It's a very private thing, but then we moved to this magical island and for some reason we can only have kids here. And so we we decided to stop doing fertility uh, treatments. We were doing that for a year Yeah, and then never mind. We're just going to come here. Yeah. And so we're able to have two kids here and then left for grad school. And as soon as we left, same problems came back. It it was weird, but um, Taylor actually did get pregnant and stayed pregnant with our third and, and then, you know, everything was going fine until it wasn't. And her water broke at 22 weeks. And, you know, you go to the hospital and there's like, you know, a lot of times there's things that we can do when there's issues, but this is not one of them. Like the baby's going to be born. Babies don't survive that, that early. And, and so it was kind of, it was like a, a terrible thing that we had to, like we knew what was happening and yeah. And I think that was kind of the big trigger that set us down this path of, I guess, grief, but then also like, I don't know, making more. And like that started us down the path of adoption where we, you know, looked into adoption and had some, a lot of grief from that, even with, you know, failed adoptions that, that fell through. And, and then finally, you know, getting Griff and that was a very last minute thing. And um, Griff was our, our son that we adopted. And it's, it's just, I don't know, it's weird to talk about because it's, there's just so many pieces to it. Mm-hmm. It's like hard to just say, well, we adopted Griff, but it was because we had these infertility issues. And then we lost our son, Walt, you know, who, who he actually was born and, and, lived for a little bit and you know and so we got to hold him and and i guess know him a little bit um before and then 
the whole adoption thing changes things. And um, I, remember, I think adoption we talked about before we were married. And so it wasn't this big shocking thing. It was like, okay, then we, then we adopt. Like it was kind of each loss. We'd even had miscarriages in between the two boys and a miscarriage after, after our second son and before Walt was born. So by the time our doctors were like, you cannot get pregnant anymore. We were like, okay, okay. Like, let's do the next thing then. And, and so after Griffey was born, it was amazing. Like meeting him was like one of the best experiences of our lives. I think it was, it was amazing because in adoption, it's just so hectic and it's, it's, there's a lot of chaos surrounding it and a lot of unknown factors. And when he was born, we were there at the hospital the day he was born and he, right after he was born, he had to go to the NICU, he had aspirin meconium or something not extremely serious. And so we were in the room with his birth mom when he was brought into the room for the first time, like for his birth mom to meet him. And it was like such a beautiful, amazing experience because it was like, oh, oh, there you are. Like it wasn't, it was like all of this chaos over the last year was just gone. And it was like, this is what this was all for. Like, there you are. Like, it was like we knew him and um, we were just, it was the way that we were meeting our son and then his birth family became a part of our family. We had a very open adoption and it was just kind of like meeting our family. It's, not, it's, it's meeting family. It was meeting more family. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not all that different from when you have a baby. I mean, it's a lot more chill, like just because you're not pregnant. And <laughs> yeah. And that same way that when our biological children were born, it was like, Oh my gosh, you're here. Like we're so like, it's so wonderful to yeah. meet you, but it wasn't like, Oh, like it wasn't, it didn't feel like meeting a stranger. Yeah. Anyway. So he, he joined our family about two years later, we were started the process to adopt again. And that time we decided to go internationally and we worked on all that paperwork. That's a mess. And finally got approved to adopt in January and then found out we were pregnant in March. And that was wild. <laughs> it was not a healthy pregnancy. Our doctors asked us to abort several times. I just get really sick. Basically my vital organs start shutting down my lungs, my heart. And so it wasn't, it was really weird to have be pregnant and not have it be like a super joyful thing. It was this very like mixed feeling thing of like, man, we spent years trying to get pregnant and now we're definitely not trying to get pregnant and trying to adopt internationally. Anyway, and that happened after moving back to this is just all very magic long, island. All long to say. Yeah. Then we had our daughter. So she she made it. We all made it. Shockingly, it was a very very terrifying nine months. But then she was born anyway. So then we have our five kids and Walt um, up in heaven. And so things were things were good. Um, we we moved for a year contract that Chris had on the mainland and came back. And within just a few months of being back, Griff started kind of limping and we were, we, we put on, we put on like shoes on him to go to preschool or something. And we were kind of were laughing. We're like, these Hawaii kids, they don't know how to walk in shoes. But he wasn't complaining about it or anything. He was just... We had, we had a skate ramp in our backyard and he had fallen kind of hard the night before. So we thought maybe he like hurt his hip, kind of fell like on his bum. And um, then and we take him to the doctor. We took him into the doctor and doctor didn't extra his leg. No, nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. The next day he was like holding his arm and we're like, oh, he must have tripped from this limp thing that he has going on. 
took him back in, see if he broke his arm. No, he didn't break his arm. And the doctor's kind of like, yeah, just kind of, I don't know, give him some ibuprofen and wait it out a couple of days. And just like he's a kid, you know, kids it's hurt themselves. Hurt. It's not a big deal. And then through the weekend, he just wasn't feeling great. He wasn't yeah, was just kind, kind of lethargic. Clingy, kind of lethargic, didn't really want to walk. Then Monday morning, so that started on Wednesday. Monday morning, we I would take the kids to school, and one of the boys was like, "Griff's not moving. He's on the ground. He's not moving." And I was like, "Whatever. No, he's fine." So I walk into like, and I go to stand him up, and he's he can't move at all. He's lost all function. Long story short, he ended up having a massive stroke that affected his whole left side of his brain. So. well, he ended up stroking for 10 days, was in the ICU for six weeks. Um, initially, he lost his his vision, his hearing, his motor. He lost everything. But throughout that year, got back his vision. His hearing was, if not perfect, pretty dang close. He did have a significant limp on his right side, but we were told like he's never going to be able to walk. He's never going to be able to eat. We were actually told that he would probably pass away six to 12 months after because the significance to the stroke on the left side was just catastrophic. It was, it affected every, generally strokes happen in like one location, but it had gone through each um, ventricle. Oops, I know I'm saying the wrong word. Yeah, each just, section of the brain. Each area on the left side of his brain. And so. And how old was Griff at this time? He was four. So okay. He was four. So, right. so, but from newborn to four. Yeah, generally, he was generally fine. well. He had sickle cell anemia. He had beta thalassemia. Initially, like, we were told he had sickle cell anemia. Yeah. And we took him in and he got quarterly blood draws to just see if anything was going on with the blood. But I think a huge... And it wasn't even a week before the stroke. He had yeah. gone in and seen the doctor and they're like... Looks great. You know what? Everything's good. Even said like, you know what? We've seen him every three months since he was born. Let's just, let's hold off for a year before we see him. His blood work's been perfect. And then I think that was a huge gift that we knew that he was well, at least a week before, because I think my mom brain would have been like, how long was he sick Mm -hmm. for? So yeah, four years old, he had sickle beta thalassemia, which is essentially means like nothing. Like there should not be complications with beta thal. I feel like we could go into yeah. medical explanation, but it really but, nothing. Essentially a healthy kid. Yeah. Yeah. Me, beta thalassemia can be dangerous if you marry someone like with a blood condition and they have children. So it's kind of like, okay, we'll watch this for your children, but it's kind of mm-hmm. like a marker. Both of his parents had a marker and for it. And so he had the actual trait. So yeah, essentially healthy four-year-old. Then that we spent that whole first year really just trying to keep him alive. <laughs> It was a hard, hard year. He had, he ended up having, he developed epilepsy from it. So he had seizures. I felt like our whole life ended up revolving around just healthcare. Yeah. He had three brain surgeries, two planned to, to help with the a massive, massive the, brain surgeries from the, the stroke. So he had these like huge scars on both sides of his head, which gave him a mohawk. So he kind of looked really cool, but then we got to do make a wish trip. So we did that. And what was it like 72 hours after he got back, he had another much less crazy of a stroke, but then had to have another brain surgery to, to deal with that. But then it seemed like after that, it was like, okay, like once we hit that first year, it was like, okay, he's getting better. And he still had a lot of 
issues and he still had to have blood transfusions, like what started out at what, like every two weeks and it pushed out. I think the furthest it ever was was six weeks. And, and so, but it became normal. It became like, okay, this is just is what's, what's going on. And I think when that happened, we, we decided to like, okay, we don't know how long he's going to be around. Like we, we got to treat him normal and let him do stuff and we need to do stuff. And it was, you know, I think that first year was really tied up in a lot of, a lot of medical visits. He was followed by a lot of different specialists. And then it was like OT and PT and speech therapy to try to get all these things back. And then finally, at one point there was a significant time when he couldn't go to the, he couldn't go to the beach. One of the therapies that he had to do was called it's like constraint, constraint therapy, therapy where they put a cast they on, put a cast on like arm. The, Yeah. The arm that can move function typically. And then, so then he ha- is forced to use his affected side. And so his arm was really tight. He couldn't really like open his hand or let go. And, and so, but when he ever had the cast on, they would do it like every six weeks. And how he'd have it on for six weeks, and then he'd have it off for six weeks or something. He had it on a few times. And then in between that time, he's getting Botox in his arm and he has to go to therapy all in town. It just was like took up all of his day. And then when he had the stupid cast on, he couldn't go to the beach because he'd get sand in it. it just and mad. so it was just kind of like our family was separated. It was like whoever's with Griffey and then whoever's with the other kids. And um, one day I came back from the beach. And Chris is like in the kitchen sobbing and he has a huge knife. I do not suggest this for anyone listening, <laughs> but he's in the kitchen cutting off Griff's um, cast. And he's like, no more. We're not doing this anymore. We're not, if we're only going to have him for a short time, we're not going to separate our family anymore. Like we're going to like cut out all the extra things. So all of his extra therapies that were supposed to, that are great. I'm such a proponent for therapies. I think they're wonderful, but we're being told, you know, this is a catastrophic event. The unfortunate thing about his stroke was that the most of the damage was done to the main ventricle. So if you think of a brain, like the main ventricle, and then there's all of these like offshoots that go to the rest of the brain, the damage was done mostly in that main ventricle to get blood to the whole left side of his brain. So if you think of it like a car crash and like no one can get through, that's essentially what was wrong with him. So he was still essentially actively stroking. Like the, the left side of his brain had no way to access blood flow because their damage was done to the entrance to that each part of the left side of his brain. So we were told like his brain's already so unstable. It's going to continue to be unstable and he's going to continue to have these seizures. And that's essentially um, going to kill him. And so we're looking at this thing saying like, okay, so he's got all these medical things that he, what are the things that he absolutely has to have? He absolutely has to have these exchange transfusions. Cause what also really started happening to him was his um, blood started clotting. And so that's why he had to go in and he actually got exchange transfusions. So they would take, and it was excruciating process. One that I quit going to the last two years because it was, it's horrible to see um, they would have to sedate him and they're essentially pulling out all of his blood and putting back in his blood. And um, well, he had to get people's blood. Oh, I'm sorry. What did I, yeah. Pulling out all his blood and he was getting donor blood. Yeah. And again, he's four years old doing this. It was yeah. just, it was just gnarly. So we're like, okay, that's what he needs. Those are things he needs to do. And then oh, we've ended up cutting out all of his therapies 
anything that was extra, we just decided like family time is what is most important to us. We're going to like, we want to be together. So anything that is extra that we perceive as like, this could be beneficial in 10 years, we cut out and we started traveling. We went to like Thailand first countries or something. Thailand, Philippines, Malaysia. We, we always set it up with this medical team. Like what are, what are the, like, what do we need when we leave? We would leave with like almost a suitcase full of just like medication for him and always (laughs) bought like the additional extra travel insurance. If we ever had to life light him back, we could. And, and we just started doing like everything together. We just figured like, okay, fine. If he, if his life is limited, then like we want to do everything that we want to do together. Can I, can I ask about something about that? Yeah. So one of the things that Melissa and I talk a lot about with family brand is like having the courage to take back your family. Mm, For sure. It was so hard and it was so scary because initially we were like, yep, whatever. I mean, you're talking to neurologists and they're saying like, he has to be on these medications. He has to come in this many times. And you're like, yes, absolutely. And I feel like that first year we were just like deer in headlights and we're like, yes, absolutely. And then once we kind of started to learn and understand more, and we even like really looked at his medication list and ended up making some hard decisions about medication because there were some that were like this going to really, I'm going to use the wrong words, kind of numb his brain in a way so that if he has seizures, it's not going to become catastrophic. And we put him on certain medications and he was like super robotic. And it was like, it's like he wasn't there. He was just like, we have all the time. Yeah. Wave your hand in front of his face and he's just like, and so really having to advocate for him and his health was really hard and scary because you're being told like, if you take him off these medications or you alter any of these therapies or anything, then these could be the outcomes. But then really we found that our health team is like family to us. Like when we really started having conversations with the neurologist of like, okay, well, we want quality of life. We're, we're not super concerned about, quantity like if he is going you're saying if he takes this medication he may live much longer but like in a catatonic state like that we're not super interested in that and that was hard and scary but our doctor was incredible i think our doctor helped us understand that everyone he helped us weed out stuff and he said like you know some parents this is important it is like they want longevity of like they want their kid to be here as long as possible and so we were able to voice our concerns and they were really helpful in helping us kind of weed through of like, okay, this is super necessary to life. He was on, he was on chemotherapy for all four years. And and so there were some things that were like, this is not negotiable, but other things that were like, okay, what's about quality of life. So taking back family. Well, and uh, everybody has a different hard. definition of what life is or quality of life. Yeah. Like, I mean, when we were like brought to the table, like, so we want to travel all summer we were like they're gonna be so mad but they were like so awesome and like okay this is amazing yeah what do we like, gotta do yeah and we'll set this all up we'll get you like if you need a transfusion over there like we will talk to like tell us what countries wherever you're going so we even had like hospitals that were like on call in case if something happened like our doctors really helped us but i think it took us like doing that pushback of like wait we don't want to do it like this anymore and and i think the therapies was it was like an annoying thing to them, but also when we explained like, 
like, can we have a conversation about when this is going to benefit him? And this, this is like a longevity thing. And we're, I mean, they were literally, they told us six months to a year at first. Yeah. So we were like, then we want all of him. We want all mm-hmm. of him like alive and well and whatever that means. And I think that it ended up working out to his benefit because a lot of the stuff was like physical therapy kind of stuff, right? It was all with his body being able to do. But when we stopped sending him to therapy, then he was playing soccer and he was right. going to the skate park with his, his siblings swim and swimming and he was living doing, life. doing far more than he would have, you know, because he was stubborn and rebellious at any time. He and so sad when we were leaving him behind doing everything. Yeah. yeah. And Chris is a kinesiologist. His undergrad is EXS. So we are like for sure not like saying anything's wrong with any of these therapies. It really just, it is like, what, what is our, what is our values? Like what is important to us right now? And we'll give you guys the courage to do that though. Like, I mean, it's, it's super inspiring. I mean, I think I'm thinking about my, our own family, like the times it's required courage to take back our family, but you guys are talking about it in the midst of just real, real challenge. What was that for you, Chris, where you're like, I'm, I'm done. Like when you cut his cast off, like, what was it that had you have the courage to be like, we're doing this different. We're going to do this the way we want to do it. You know, I, I don't remember specifically like there being a trigger or something, but I, I remember that it was like, I don't know, not the way that I wanted to live and not seeing the benefits of like, I remember I know, I knew, he on. was at home crying and he couldn't go to the beach with us. And so I left with the other kids and I think, it was like, we had done that for a year. We just were always separated. Hmm. And you were like, we're not, we're not doing that yeah, anymore. Like what's so what's life was, being sad and angry all the time? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Griff. Like, oh my gosh. Because this is actually, when I say I knew you guys, I really, I knew Griff oh, through yeah. Richie's Instagram yeah. and Natalie. And once in a while, I saw these we'll backstage the actors yeah, right, named right. Chris and Taylor. <laughs> but I really, like, I felt like, and I'm sure everyone tells you this you know, that knew him around town. I was thousands of miles away in Arizona and I felt like a new Griff just through Richie's yeah. one person's post. And I just loved it that night. We came into your house and you just told us, and we just sat there for, uh, just tell us like, yeah, tell us about Griff, like his personality and just who he was. Oh, he was so rad. Griff, Griff was just, I don't know. There's a million ways we could go. Griff was happy. Griff was 100%. Angry. He was 100%. Yeah. Whatever, yeah, he, was whatever doing. he was doing. That's the best way to put it because, but hundred percent Hulk, you know, and then, but he was also the fastest to forgive fastest to, to switch. So like he'd get so mad at stuff and then, you know, 30 seconds later and he's, you know, the cuddliest, loviest kid ever. I think one of the biggest impacts that he had on people was empathy like that kid knew when people had stuff going on, whether it was parents or not, somehow he had this magical gift of like going up to people and putting his arm around them, you know, and he has no idea that they've got stuff going on. And we would only find out later that you're like, Oh, I was having a really rough day and blah, blah, blah. And Griff came and like, you know, asked if I was okay and, you know, gave me a hug. And he just had this like sense about him that he knew when people needed, like, it was almost like he could feel what other people were going through. And I, I don't know how many times I've heard from people like Griff is my best friend. 
Like Griff loved every, even like his love was a hundred percent. Like he was yeah. so genuine. And like when he was with someone, like making them feel like they were the most important person. Yeah. He and never was held. No. And like any, and babies, he loved babies. I mean, everything was like such a big deal. We, and it was almost like the first time every, every time. Everything was the first him. time. Like we were like, driving down the, yeah. And well, there was one time that a teacher was telling Taylor about, he's freaking out about something. And, and this was after the stroke and he lost a lot of his verbal communication. And, and she's like, what's out there? And she's like, pull, he's like pulling out, come outside, come outside. Yeah. And he, he's basically saying like, look at the wind blowing the trees. Like, it's amazing. You know, it's almost like it's fireworks, but it's just a simple, like the tree is moving because the wind and he was so good at seeing those simple things. Like I think in our environment, but also in people and, and not just that he would notice it, but he grabbed the teacher and was like, you have to see this. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> And he was always like, well, like rainbows. so like excited. Every rainbow was like, he would just start screaming and we were always like, what's happening? And he's like, oh, rainbow. And we're in Hawaii, you see them every day. So it's kind of just everyday magic was like, everything was so amazing to him. So yeah. amazing. Even things that yeah. he saw 20 minutes earlier, garbage trucks. Like he lost his mind with garbage trucks. Like just every, like yeah. whatever he was stoked about, he was super, super stoked about. Yeah. And I think sometimes... <laughs> I don't know. You think about the things that you get excited about, but when they become normal, then you get less excited. And he didn't, he just was always excited, you know, and equally like if it was something that scared him or he didn't want, you know, it was equally as fearful over an ant the first time and the thousand time. Uh, I love to share some of the stories about these. These are some of my favorite ones you told that night. He's just kind of, he was also, he could be mischievous and new, like, He'd try oh, to get out of yeah, school. He He'd try to get people oh, to come call him. Or, like he would call different friends to get him out of school. Or, yeah. After yeah. his stroke, like, so he, like I said, he lost most of his verbal communication, but he really picked up on the fact that like, oh, people, like he didn't ever consider himself different. Like he was always super annoyed if we ever tried to like make any accommodations to him that like we didn't have to for the other kids. Like if we had to put a floaty on it, like he would, he would just, he was like, he never wanted to be treated differently. I think truly in his head, like even at home when our other kids would be talking to Alexa, like he would just, his speech was very garbled. So he would just be like, blah, 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 blah. and we're like, Alexa doesn't unfortunately, <laughs> because he truly just like, he felt like he would, nothing was wrong with him. But then in that same vein, he kind of picked up on the fact that like, Oh, other people see me differently. Yeah, and so I act really, a certain way. Yes. And so I he, get away he, would, he did have epilepsy to be fair. And he would have seizures, but his, his were non. He would just kind of zone out. It's yeah. like, and you do this. Like, but then he realized like, Oh, if I like, he would, he would literally, he would do it on purpose yeah. school and just like stare off and then, and then they'd take him to the nurse's office. And so several times we'd like come in and he'd literally have his feet kicked up and he'd be laughing <laughs> And we're like, like, get back to class. And he'd be like, oh, man. And then we'd he have to go back to class. But he With really, a smile on his face. Oh, like, yeah. oh. Yeah. But whenever, like, we weren't available, pick him up. And, like, you know, Natalie friends. picks him up. Or, like, my yeah. sister-in-law. And, like, 
you know, he gets picked up and they take him for ice cream. No, it became a problem at school where he was doing this like weekly. And we finally were like, we are never, we're not taking you out of school. Like if you stop faking seizures, he was totally, totally. And then like, we don't use electronics in our house during the week. And so he like knew that he was always allowed to FaceTime grandma and grandpa though. So he would like tell Chris like, Oh, can I can I use your phone? I'm gonna FaceTime Grandpa, and so then he FaceTime Grandpa to be like, "Hi," and then he'd like hurry and walk in the other room, and then like hang up on Grandpa and start playing a game. Like, <laughs> like he was always like, he was always, in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and then even like walking, like we when we were traveling, we would went with several different friends and families, and he would just be like. I, like he just like stand there and we're like start walking (laughs) he's like oh but then anyone else would be like okay come here (laughs) so he was always into like what's like the least amount of energy that i can put forth and like just look at people like just like a typical teenager yeah 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 i love that though hearing about his his personality oh yeah he was hysterical and and we always say he was like baby hulk because like who's kinder than bruce banner like no one but then also Hulk, you're like, ooh, watch out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he could turn it off a lot easier than Bruce, though. Yeah. That was one thing that was amazing about him. Like he really truly had like Christ-like love. Like he genuinely, like if he you did something to wrong him and and you were like, I'm sorry, immediately be like, okay. And then he'd hug you and you'd be like, he would carry on. It was there was yeah. no grudges ever, ever. Yeah, he'd hold a grudge for like two seconds and it then was like, your best friends again. Yeah. 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 Take us through maybe his last. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, he, that first year was pretty gnarly. And then it was kind of like each year got better and better. He was able to do more and more. We put him back in school. And initially it was like, he's truly just here because he just wants to be with friends. Like we had, our expectations were like, let's just try to keep this kid alive. It really was very low bar. But then two years passes, three years passes. And then he was like spelling. He had a iPad that he used as a communication device and at school. And he was like spelling words well, and knew all his colors. He had and all letters. these shortcuts. So like he wouldn't have to spell stuff out because at first he didn't know how to spell. So it'd be like, you know, icons, right. That he pushes and then it can talk for him. And then he quit using those. <laughs> His teachers were like, like come on, it, because he wanted to like spell stuff out. Yes, we just like, we're so what? happy he's learning how to spell. <laughs> he just, like wanted to spell every single letter. But that like, he was in second grade. And I mean, that doesn't sound like mind blowing. But for us, we were just blown away because truly... I mean, if you gave his scans and each, he was getting scans every six months. And every time the doctors were like, we, we don't know how yeah, like parts of his brain are alive. like the, doing how breathing. Stuff, he right. shouldn't be able to breathe. Like, so, and we're just like, I, he's just getting smarter and smarter and learning yeah. more and more and more, which was really, really blowing all of his doctors out of the water. But then everyone kind of was like, it's great. It's Griff. Like his doctor's son got to find out like Griff doesn't do anything that we think is typical, which ended up being true. His so he's in second grade, go home, visit family for Christmas. He went skiing. It was a huge deal because he stood up skiing. We've been doing adaptive skiing the last three years, and he was in like a ski set. Again, I grew up on the mountain, so as much as my 
my children love the ocean. Like that was always an important thing to me. And so this last year he stood up skiing. We went to the adaptive office and they were like, we think he's strong enough that he can just he'll stand up. And we were, I was like, so annoyed because when he's in the, in the sit ski, we can just all fly down and be on mountain together. But it's the difference between like fun going to Disneyland or fun, like I don't learning know, teaching hiking a mountain ride a bike. or something like, like, yeah, like, like, Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> and now I don't get to go play. So, but he did it and he stood up and it was amazing. We had so much fun. We were with cousins. It really was like a monumental yeah. moment. Well, he felt like amazing. he did it. You know, yes. and we've mm-hmm. got all these videos and stuff. And, you know, he's just going down the bunny slope, but he's got the biggest smile on his face. Like, you know, he feels like a champion. Like, I'm doing what everybody else is doing yeah, rather totally. than just, like, strap me in and, and go down, go on the ride. And we were even kind of to the point that we're like, okay, I mean, this kid's going to outlive all of us. So now we're starting to look at, like, different therapies and different things that we're like, I mean, he's in second grade and is like learning how to read and write. And so we're like, oh, we got to get him access to like all these other services. Yeah, yeah. it's like the first time since we had made yeah. that decision that we to like, stop stuff. It was, so. and our, our doctors even said like, you know, we feel like we're working with Griffin. We feel like he's not medically, medically, medically fragile anymore. We feel like we're just looking at like a kid with special needs like that. We just, because he, it was actually really, really stable for like a solid yeah. year uh, or more. Like truly his only hospital because in the other years he was, he would kind of have like a breakthrough seizure that would, he'd have to go to the hospital for or have like other weird medical things that kind of pop up. But that last year he was. Yeah. He'd have his transfusions rough day after. And then he was down to just a super minor seizure meds and just his chemo. And that was it, which was a big deal for him. So we're kind of like casually looking into other therapies and things that he can start doing, thinking like, okay, once he goes into third grade, we're going to have to really like get to work with him. And we were... It's kind of like life just kind of became more normal. I, I say normal, but it's it's like instead of just kind of maintaining, it's like we were making progress. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a lot of growth and it was kind of like, we, we just didn't have to think about certain things that we had, our minds had been so occupied by for so long. And so, I mean, and, and you asked about like the last day, I guess. And, you know, we had a a great fun day at the beach over at at Turtle Bay and, uh, you know, sneaking into the pool and, and it was just, it was just an awesome day. We were over at the beach and at one point the kids decided to go run over to the beach, to the, to the pool. And I remember thinking like, Oh my gosh, Chris run over there. Griff doesn't have his floaties. And if he jumps into the pool, that could be a problem. I just remember having this like gut wrenching feeling of like, that would be horrible. Something like tragic happened to yeah. him and so I and so I maybe you guys stayed and Ashley and I ran over so we were with another f- family friends and so we just ran over and I and I remember seeing him being like oh okay everything's fine like he didn't jump into the pool as if he would just go dump to dive in because again he was like I'm fine nothing's wrong with him we can do anything so, and he jumped into lots of pools and would climb out yeah yeah so if I was like oh he just anyway and how old was Griff at this time so now he's seven he's eight, eight. So he's eight, eight so and a half. Four, almost exactly four years after yeah. his first stroke. So he had a stroke when he was four in February. And so this is um, actually last day of February. It was leap year. Leap year. Leap year. Yeah. So we're just at the pool beach all day long. Everything's great. We're driving home. 
the whole way home, Griffey's like, I love you, mom. I love you, dad. Love you, Jay. Love you, Hugh. Love you, Rhett. And we're like, over and over. Love you too. And and then we're finally like, okay, girl, we need to figure out what we're having for dinner. Like we were like trying to like, okay, thank you. Change the conversation. Got it. Because he's just just saying I love you to everyone. Repeating it. Over and we're like, okay, but we can't hear (laughs) over you. Like, so hang on a second. Love you too, man. And then we get home. We get home and we're home 15 minutes. Yeah, like I think I left. Chris left. He was going to town or something i mean long story short he ended up i hear him, i heard him crying downstairs we get, we get dinner going kids started watching a movie it's friday saturday night chris left he was going to a concert in town i was there and then i had a friend come over this is not long story short this is me making everything longer but he he started he just like started crying downstairs and i'm like come here so i go to him and he kind of like collapses in my arms and I'm like, oh, he's exhausted. I mean, we were at the beach easily yeah, 10 hours, like just a full beach day. And so I, he just kind of like falls asleep in my arms. And so I take him upstairs to my room and just kind of was like massaging his body. As my friend had showed up and I'm talking to her as I'm just kind of massaging everything. And I, and I tuck him in and I'm like, hey, you can stay here. I'll be back because I was leaving with my friend. We had a babysitter that night. And then, I mean, I was gone 15 minutes. And then I got a call that... He had, he had thrown, up, thrown up, but wasn't waking up. But he wasn't waking up. And so our babysitter was going to give him a bath and clean him up. And she's been our, she's lived with us for years and she's part of our family too. And so she knew, she knew all of his kind of nuances and she's like, I'm going to give him a bath and I'll call you back. And it was probably 10 minutes after that, but she called me back and said, he's, um, not, he's not waking up. And so I said, okay, bring him to the hospital. I'll meet you at the hospital. And long story short, he never woke up. <laughs> he that happened on a Saturday. Brain injuries are so chaotic that it's hard to know kind of where it's going to go. Um, but we got him to initially to hospital up here, and I knew I just knew when she brought him. I just knew like this is not normal. This is not going to be like one of our typical, cause he would have breakout seizures where he'd kind of be non-responsive and then he'd get a transfusion and he'd be better. But it was like, this isn't, this isn't that. And I just remember telling the doctors, like, we got to get him to the children's hospital. Like this is, this isn't normal. And they were kind of like, okay, let us do a scan. I mean, he's completely non-responsive. I didn't even think he was breathing when I got him out of the car. And I, I'm, I'm making this story so yeah. much longer. Meanwhile, we got a scan. We got a scan. I'm texting Chris. He's at this concert. I'm like, hey, Griff's at the hospital. Maybe plan on just staying in town. Meet me at the children's hospital. And we town could, is? town. Town's like, an hour away yeah. or so, if not more. And the children's hospital's in town. Chris is in town. So I was worried that Chris would be coming back from the concert and we'd be transporting him to the children's hospital. So I'm just telling him, like, meet me at the children's hospital. Anyway, and then he gets the scan, and I was standing there. Typically, you know, you get a scan. They send it to radiology. Radiology gives the report, gives it to the doctor. But I told the doctor in the ER, like, I'm going to stand right here. I'm going to watch you. I'm going to watch your face as these scans come up on the screen because I know something's wrong. And I we stood there as a screen, the scans came up, and immediately he swore and ran out of the room. So we've got to get this kid down to children's hospital. There's blood everywhere. So he ended up having a massive hemorrhagic stroke, which means um, blood where his other ones were not. His other one was more centralized. He had ended up having like a hematoma that needed to be drained. 
And his original one was ischemic, which is more um, like a blockage, like blockages in the brain. So this one was actually like a lack like, of blood flow. Yeah. Lack of blood flow is an ischemic stroke. That's what his original one was. And um, this one is hemorrhagic. So it was his brain is bleeding yeah, everywhere. Just, yeah. So was, they get yeah. him to the children's hospital and we're kind of told, okay, you know, we've, we've got the images. The, the main, where was his stroke at the original one? I mean, all this extra information is not necessary, but so they said like, okay, there's a main, there's a, he's had this, he's had a hemorrhagic stroke, but it's way, way, way deep in the thalamus. I'm saying all the wrong things. It was not that whatever it's remember. deep inside. They, they, they don't have, they can't get access to it, but the doctor was like, not a big deal. We're going to put in a shunt because his brain's just swelled a ton. And so if we put in a shunt, the, the blood can drain out. It, it should be easy. No problem. It was just, it was weird because, so the, the brain surgeon is, you know, there and he is just like all the hope in the world. <laughs> like, like we're going to do a shunt, swelling's going to go down. Everything's going to be Well, he fine. was definitely like, this is a big like, deal, but like brain yeah, injuries but, happen all the time. He, I mean, neurosurgeon, yeah. and that's what he does with. So we we have process to fix it. Not a big deal, you know. And then essentially you wait, you wait 72 hours, the brain swelling will go down and then we can see what's going on. But he never, ever had any brain activity from the second we got to the children's hospital. The initial brain surgery was supposed to be like 30 minutes or something, right? He was like super easy in and out. Ended up being three hours because he couldn't, his brain was just so swollen. He couldn't get into the space that he needed to. And we just kind of felt like this is, this is different. And, the, and I kept telling Chris and I rode with him in the ambulance right down and he flatlined in the ambulance. They were like doing chest compressions and like he, they bagged him in the ambulance. And I'm just like in the corner trying to not oh my goodness. die myself. And so when we get there, Chris is, Chris was very like, what's going on? What's going on? I'd been in the hospital. It took like three hours from the time that he was at the hospital to transport him and kind of know what was going on. And Chris is like, what is this? I mean, the kid's probably been in the hospital hundreds of times over the years. And I'm like, I just feel like it's just, I can't explain it. I just, this feels different to me. Yeah, you have like the parental and so, then, and so Chris was there waiting. He went to the hospital. They knew exactly what room. They, they wheeled him immediately into the operating room. He didn't go to another room. Like the ambulance took him directly in. Immediately they started working on him. And so that's kind of the information that we had. Like he's had a stroke. Okay. And we knew like he was going to have strokes again. He did nine months after his first one. So it was kind of like, okay, shoot, this is not great, but what is, what is this? What are we dealing with here? But it was never good. The 72 hours, it was never, he never was stable. He never, they just all this stuff, like scan your eyes every hour. But they're telling us like, okay, we're going to do this procedure and then this is what's going to happen afterwards. And and none of that happened. They would do a procedure or change his medication. And it was like the worst case scenario kept on happening. And, but the thing that was significant to me, they kept on scanning his eyes and they was always zero, zero. They could be like yeah. zero, one, two, three, like depending think- on activity. And it was never, they never showed any brain activity. And so then they're like, okay. Yeah. And then his heart rate or whatever, then the swelling kept going up instead of down. And so they had to start giving him this kind of emergency medicine. That's essentially salt, salt, which makes the swelling in the brain go down. And so, and it would work for about an hour 
and then the swelling would go back up. And so they had to keep upping, upping, upping the doses. To the point where the salt then, was killing him. Yeah. And then they said his sodium levels are like hundreds times, hundreds of times higher, right? It was like yeah. zeros higher than a fatal level. Like it was already fatal doses of it. So they, but with brain injuries, they want you to wait 72 hours. It was just kind of that the whole three days. It was never great. We called our families. Well, it was kind of a blessing that one of the doctors who knew Griff, like it was, she was his hematologist, like the blood doctor that he worked with for years. His whole life. And she, even, even before the stroke and, and she comes in and she's like, this is really bad. Like, if you guys want family to see him before he goes, like get him here. And then the next day, the doc, you know, different doctor that's mm-hmm. on call is like, finds out what she told us. And she's like, he's freaking out like, what? It's not that bad or all this, but it was such a blessing because it was that bad. And he didn't ever wake up. And, you know, so we went in late Saturday night and then Wednesday, you know, you know, he, he was gone. And, but I think it was, it was weird because I think both of us had this sense of like, he's not going to wake up from this and it doesn't make it any easier, but it made it so that we could make decisions to like, okay, you know, tell family to fly out and, and, and say your goodbyes. I mean, the last person we were waiting, so we called family and we were kind of in this weird 72 hour zone of, it was dependent on like which doctor you talk to the doc, the team of doctors that had worked with Griff his whole life. were like, this is really bad. Like this is very serious. He's in critical, critical condition. And then we'd have like the other doctors who have never worked with them that are just working on off of like numbers and brain that are like, we're doing pretty standard here. And so it was this weird thing. But then because we had the gift of his team being like, no, this is not great. We were able to call family and then even telling family on the phone, like, we don't know, but like, if you have to choose between a funeral or coming now, like he, he's probably not going to make it. And as a parent, that's like such a weird zone to be in because you want to have all of the faith in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. But I also just feel like it was such a blessing and like, we're religious people. We rely on our spirituality a lot. And we just really felt like Chris, like tried to give him a father's blessing. And even in that blessing, it was like, he was so emotionally disrupted because he could not give him a blessing of healing. And it was like, the only words that come out of his mouth were that he could be comforted and that he would get to be with our family members that, and his brother that was waiting on it on the other side and and know that we'll be okay. So we were able to get family there. And then the very last person we're waiting for was his dad and his dad gets there and literally the dad that he's always every day, his (gasps) his father, Griff's grandpa. So Chris's dad, Chris's dad. Sorry. And it was literally like what? 15 minutes after he got there, I looked into the hallway and I see our, Thank you, doctor that we've had. Who's the original doctor from when Griff first had the stroke? The that, very, like, he rode with us in him. the ambulance. Um, the very first time that Griff ever flatlined and was his doctor that like manually <laughs> helped with his transfusions before they got machines out here. I see him in the hall and he's crying. And it was like 
it was like, it was, it was amazing. There's so many amazing, I mean, if we just talk about the miracles that happened while you're in the hospital, we could talk to you for three hours, but it was really, um, such a blessing because while we're in the hospital, each doctor that had ever worked with him in the NICU just so happened to be on shift. And one doctor was like, I don't even ever work. I'm an admin now. Like I'm on shifts like quarterly. And so he got to be there. He got to be there. And so the last doctor that Griff got had in the hospital was the very first doctor that he ever had. And we love him so much. And so I finally see him and I can like see him through like a really weird, he didn't know I could see him and he's crying. We've got in the hall and he's like, this is really bad. And it was finally, finally a doctor that was on shift that knew Griff. We've exhausted our resources. And he's like, we need to go. We're going to do one more exam. We're going to do one more scan and like see what's going on with his brain. And then we need to make some decisions. And so I keep saying long story short and then end up making my stories forever long, but long story short, he had ended up having like 10 or 11 more. He was just stroking, 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 stroking. And we, then that was like, okay, you gotta get your, if you like, you need, who do you want in the room? Like to say goodbye. Who do you want here? And so we had, we were able to have all of our family there. It was such a amazing gift, but, so he ended up passing away that night. So he went, it was Wednesday, Wednesday morning, which was so incredible because he had his stroke on leap year, which, you know, that doesn't happen every year. So that's great. We don't have to like deal with that day every year. <laughs> and then he died on March 4th, which like is so significant to us. Cause to us, it's like March 4th, like keep mm-hmm. marching forth and like keep doing that. And even as he, I don't know. I could talk so much about the hospital. I'm trying to like reel it back to like what your original question is, is how you can show up for people. But the other significant thing about his passing is the day of his funeral was the last day of social gathering in Hawaii for COVID. It was at at midnight. We originally were going to have his funeral at our church and our church leader had to call us and he was sobbing and saying like, I'm so sorry, you can't have the funeral here anymore. Our Unless it's only family up to it was like 10 10 people, people. which is like our children. (laughs) Like, yeah, because this was in 2020, right? Yeah, right before the pandemic Mm -hmm. hit here. I mean, I guess everywhere, but so initially, I mean, and then, and then, of course, I have to mention the blessing of like we ended up having his funeral at Turtle Bay, which like we don't go to Turtle Bay often as a family. Like I can't even remember the last time that we went as a family, but that just so happened to be like the beach where we were the entire day that he was last day that he was alive. Mm-hmm. And so his funeral ends up being in like this beautiful bar and they were so generous and just donated it for us to use. And because the hotels were all cleared out, there was no one there. They had to cancel all the events. So we ended up having his funeral overlooking the actual beach that he was on. So there's a lot of, a lot of, extra information that is not necessary to tell the story of how to show up for people. But the point is very immediately after everything gets closed down and we are isolated. And initially with COVID, you know, none of us knew what this thing was. We didn't Mm -hmm. know, like, are we all going to die? (laughs) Like, and so showing up for people really became. I think it even started in the hospital the day before he died was kind of this day where it was like, okay, if Griff meant something to you, you can come and, and, you know, and say your goodbyes. And it wasn't oh, just family. And there were hundreds, hundreds of, people, of people throughout the hospital, teachers, classmates. And, and it was just, it was really interesting because when you talk about showing up, 
it's it's kind of it's unique depending on the situation, depending on the people. Because I remember some people showing up, you know, these big burly guys, and they can't even like walk up to them because they're standing in the corner for four hours, just kind of being there. And and then other people who who come and you know and they're and they've got balloons and you know and gifts Food. and food and, and, and different things. And I think, um, and some people came to like lift up our spirits and people showed up like to grieve their power you. was to like come with joy. And it was like, yeah. Oh, like that was like such a lovely visit. And other people would come and just sob on the bed with us in the corner or like some people would crawl in bed with Griff. It really was like a unique thing that each person brought their gifts and we couldn't have done it without each person. And it w- I, I couldn't have been like, Hey, Sarah, I need you to show up and I need you to give me a hug. And then <laughs> Ashley, I need you to show up and I need you to cry with me. And then I need you to bring me food. And what I was, it was never something I could have been like, this is what I need you to do. It was like each person uniquely brought themselves. And it was like everything. Chris had friends that literally just stood in the corner with their arms folded and didn't do anything and just watched and and not even crying, but that just stood there. And it was like, that was amazing to me because it was like, that's all you can do. All you can do is it was like, you it can't was... even weep because you're so horrified. Griffin grew up here his whole life. And so everyone's known him his whole life. And so our adult men friends that are like, I don't know what to do, but I can stand here. And like, I'm not going to tell you it's going to be okay. I'm not going to like, and I'm really not going to do anything, but literally stand here. And like those men will be forever in my eyes of like indebted forever. And then we've also had friends that could not stop crying. And it was like anything, you know, it was just kind of, so I think the idea of like, what can you do to show up for people? It's like, my answer is just, yes. It's like, whatever is like uniquely inside of you that you feel compelled to do, like do that. Yeah. That is the thing to <laughs> do. It's, the it's, do. It's like just the word do like, don't yeah. be afraid. Don't, if you have nothing to say and all you can do is stand and fold your arms in the corner, do like, it. that is going to don't, mean don't so think much. that it's not valuable. Like, because I think a lot of times people think like, well, there's nothing I can do except this small gesture. It's like, well, then do the small gesture. And, and I think that, I don't know, it, it changes over time, you know, like at, at first it's, it's this, you, we're in the hospital, we're in the middle of mm-hmm. it. Like he's, he's not even like, he's going to die. He's not stable from hour to hour, like hour to hour, point. they're giving him emergency meds and we don't know. And so we would even have people, sorry, I don't know if this is where you're going, but like, people texting, like, what can we do? And it was so, he was so critical the entire time there. We couldn't even respond. It was like, yeah, I don't, it's not even that I don't have the mental capacity. It's like time. I don't have my phone. I'm, I'm, I'm only concerned on like this huge traumatic event that's happening live right here. And so people really had to just decide, (laughs) decide what to do. And it's awkward. And I think going into the ICU and like, I I think we learned so many lessons because I don't know that that's a comfortable place I would be in. Like, I don't know that I'd be like, Oh, a child in the ICU who is dying. And on the day when we told everyone that they could come, we knew like 
he's going to come off life support by the end of the day. So that day we knew, I don't know that that's a place that I would feel super comfortable in, but we are like forever indebted to the people who like put that uncomfortableness. Like we even had a dear, dear friend that like couldn't even speak. He was so emotional because the last time he'd been in the hospital was when his father passed away. So it's also like very triggering and upsetting to him, but he still showed up. And literally I don't remember any words coming out of his mouth ever, except for just crying. And so it was like, all of that was like all the right things. Yeah. And I think it's, it can be cliche to say like, follow your heart. But I think like, like you were saying that, there are things that you feel and those things that you feel matter. And when you feel like you should do something, you you should do it, you know? And I think it's changed. Like, so he, he does, he passes away and we have a paddle out, we have the funeral and, you know, and there's a million ways that that for us, you know, some of it had nothing to do with us, but it was like taking our kids to kind of have some sort of normalcy and, you know, taking them to the skate park or go surf or whatever, making sure that we have food. You know, I, one of the kindest things, one of my best friends from elementary school, and we've, we've slowly drawn apart. Not that, not that we're like, like if we saw each other, we would be best friends. We haven't seen each other for like 15 years probably. And he is an amazing artist and painted this painting of Griff. And we had no idea. He just was like, Hey, what's your address? I want to send you something. And and so I think like, do, do what you feel and, and you can't go wrong. It it reminds me of, I heard a leader one time talk about like, if we saw someone struggling to swim in a swimming pool, we wouldn't say, Hey, do you need help? Oh my gosh. That's (laughs) so good. And we would just jump in and help, you know? And I, and I think, like you said, like trust that, Hey, if you're feeling to just be there, but you don't even know what to do, don't let that be a reason to not just go be there. Yeah. And use the innate things that you have, because like there were people that, I don't know, came and cleaned our house. Like, and now I'm talking not just with like when he passed, but also with his stroke and and doctor's visits. It's like, okay, well, people washed our kids, people cleaned our house. I remember coming home one day and there's like piles of laundry folded neatly and the house is vacuumed. And there's a note that like dinner's in the oven, you know, cook it on this temperature for so long. And, you know, and then sometimes it's just, maybe you don't have that much. Maybe you're going through your own stuff. And I think sometimes it's giving a hug or sending a text and it's not, there's never right words to say. And I think it's just kind of like, I was thinking about you. Yeah. Yeah. I think of like when Griff was initially sick the first time we were very taken away from our other kids who Rhett was two, like she was very young. And I think of like huge things that were happening for us too, where like people being like, can your kid come over to play? Your kids come over to play. Like that was like, I can't think about that without weeping because like, our other kids are experiencing trauma. Like as adults, we like showing up for adults is one thing, but then you forget that like our kids whole life was swiftly very much changed in a drastic way. And so even just like inviting a kid over, I was like, so grateful for even that. But then, and I think, I think what we're talking about right now is crisis, right? Like when families are in crisis, like how you show up for them. 
But then I think like, I like the longer term of like grief and how you show up. Mm-hmm. I think that's also a whole different thing because I think when you said the drowning thing, I've, I, and I have a hard time telling people like, what's, what do you do for people? I think we were kind of discussing this earlier of like, some people want this and some people want the complete opposite. So I, I have a hard time saying this is the right thing to do, but I, I do have a couple ideas. <laughs> I just, I have this quote, when you talk about drowning, I remember so many times feeling like I was actually drowning and people being like, you are so awesome. You are so amazing. You're so strong. And I, that was always excruciating to me because I felt like, oh, I'm drowning. Like I'm drowning. And my friend sent me this quote. Okay. It says, I dream of never being called resilient again in my life. I'm exhausted by strength. I want support. I want softness. I want ease. I want to be amongst kin not patted on the back for how well I take a hit or for how many. And that's kind of, kind of intense, but I just think like a lot of times for me in my life, when I've seen people struggling, I'm like, they're doing so great. Like they're, you're amazing. And I feel like the problem with that is that it offloads my ability to support them or my ability to show up for them. Cause I'm like, no, you're doing great. Like you're, you're doing awesome, right? Like you're feeling great. You assume that there's nothing to be done. And so everything is fine. Or even, even the saying, like, you are so much stronger than me, or I could never go through that is like also a way to kind of like offload this like responsibility that we all have for each other, because it's like, just for the record, no one is given more strength to endure hell than anybody else. Like there's not like some magical thing that's like, And now I will give you this horrific experience and, and go and do well. Like we all don't want to experience hell. And so I think that's the only thing that I could really say as far as like what not to do, but like telling someone that they're so strong. I think even an alternative to that is like, I can't believe how strong you have to be right now. Even just like switching those words around because I'm when you're drowning and someone's like, you're doing so great. And you're like, literally can you throw me anything like I can I can you're underwater I mean I have such a clear image of like drowning and people being like giving you a thumbs up and being like you're doing so awesome with that and you're like how, how can you not see that like this is overtaking me yeah, I don't am, assume I am so overwhelmed ask. with my grief and my trauma but by you being like thumbs up is like like they're not so suffocating yeah it, it feels yeah. so dismissive I don't know if that's the right word but I think you but, you assume, well, I don't know, it's it's hard to say. You don't assume that they're not doing well and you don't ask like, how you doing? Yeah. You know, you you ask like how are you right now? Assuming like wow, like this year has been really hard on you guys. I, I can't imagine like you know, well, and have you, are you still drowning? You know, are you and I think, and I think that's checking when you get into, in? Yes. Yes. That's when you get into what Chris Smith was talking about of like, some people don't want to talk about it. So there's not, I just think that those first two things of like, if we could all just never tell anyone that they're super strong or that like, you're doing a great job that I feel like that can be like across the board. And then it turned into like, okay, now what do you do with this thing? This like prolonged grief or hard things that people are going through. Some people don't want to talk about it. And some people do. And I had a super awesome experience this week. I, we ended up leaving the Island for several months during the pandemic, just because we, we needed support in like a way that like, we didn't feel like we could have here with 
the island being shut down. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of went and stayed with different family friends throughout this last year. And so then we came back to the island and now we're meeting like all these new awesome friends that have like done the opposite and like come here during the pandemic. And I had a friend yesterday at the beach and she said, do you like, are you okay talking about Griff? Are you like, do you want to talk about Griff? Are you like, is that something that makes you feel better or worse? And I thought that was brilliant. Not only did she like not acknowledge this thing, but she asked first, like, do you want to talk about him? And then she proceeded to say, can you tell me everything about him? And I was like, yes. Like it was like, this amazing thing because we have some of the best friends in the entire world. And I don't know how often I'm asked about him. Our really close friends do, but people in the community. It's like you have to initiate it's easy it. to mm-hmm. think that people are doing much better than they are. And for me, I could never talk about Griff too much. Like I want to talk about him all the time. I love when people bring him up. I love when people send me pictures of him. I love when people like remember specific dates. So to me, like number one is things not to say, but number two is very much like, don't forget that people that are grieving, it doesn't ever end for them. Like going back to school was like really, really hard on me this year. Um, yeah, our daughter has the same teacher. The last day to pick up Griff at school, they always like race to the fire pole. And in his last day of school, I was standing at the fire pole with my daughter for an extra five, 10 minutes. And we're like, where's Griff? Where's Griff? He had actually gone back to his class and like hugged each of his teachers, each of his para pros and said, I love you. I love you. I love you. Left, came back and then said goodbye. Like they were like, yeah, bye. Like school's been out for 10 minutes. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. And like, we think he knew kind of what was, he was in for, but it was a really significant thing that we were told about after the fact, but I was standing on campus and waiting for him and didn't know where he was. And then he showed up and then he never went back to school. His, he had, a, he passed away on Wednesday and then schools closed down on Friday for the pandemic. And they hadn't, we hadn't been on campus since school reopened now. And so taking my daughter back onto campus, I just had this like very (laughs) triggering (laughs) event. And my daughter now is in his class, like Mm -hmm. with his teacher. And it's like so beautiful and wonderful. And also was just like a lot to take in. It's a lot to the surface. And, and I just think like, and this is not to like bag on anybody. Cause again, we have the best friends in the world, but no one like checked in with like, how it's back to school for you. I think there's just things that like we don't think about with like parents specifically that have lost children, but I'm sure it can go across the board with grief. Like any new things are hard because you're missing someone that's not doing that. Holidays are always hard. Birthdays will always be hard. And I think I could probably very confidently say that across the board that like for people that are grieving dates are significant. So I think there's crisis. You can talk about crisis all day long, like how to show up for people. If the house is on fire, what do you do? You know, put the fire, you Mm -hmm. show up, you, you, you bring all the things you bring, whatever you need, but it's the longevity of grief that I think as a society, we could do a lot better on and not forget that person's world is never going to be the same. And like our child will always be gone. And like, he's gone this year and then next year will be the second, you know, it's like, 
And I, I, it's hard to conceptualize that. I think if you haven't had like a massive traumatic grieving experience, but my biggest thing of telling people how to show up is like, don't forget the longevity of grief. And And I think, and in studying and in studying grief this year, it's that, it's that continual of like new things, new events, big events, big, like they're always triggering. And, and, and then, and then to just ask the question, you know, like my friend on the beach that said, like, do you want to talk about this? I think if you're uncomfortable with, if it's someone that you don't really know, Mm -hmm. if you're uncomfortable with, you don't know how they're feeling. Again, I never really hung out with this person individually outside of group settings. And so I, I just thought that was such an awesome, no one's ever asked me that. Like that was such an awesome thing of like, how, how, how do you feel about this? Yeah. Don't and, so, and, then, and then if you don't, questions. if you're not close enough to ask that question, then just say like, Hey, I know it's back to school. And I was thinking about you and that parent can take that information. However they want, you know, they can either be like, yeah, back to school was awesome. And it was great. And it was fine. And I have nothing to share with you. Or you may just make their day and see them drowning and be like the one that was willing to like throw them a life preserver. So I just think for me, the longevity, don't forget that like people are grieving forever. (laughs) Check in. Tell people that when you, when you were thinking about them, tell them you were thinking about them. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be, you know, yeah. And that doesn't have to be triggering because that then, then like, Chris was saying earlier, like some people want to talk about, some people don't by just even just like a general, like, Hey, I was thinking about you and Griff today. Then it allows them to either be like, Nope, I don't want to go there. Or like, Oh my gosh, thank you so much. It's actually been really hard. It is interesting too. Like you say in checking in, I I had a, someone really close to me that was really struggling over the last couple of years. And for the first time ever, I just kind of started at first it was just more forcing myself to do the habit of checking in. Hey, how are you? And then I think I did it enough to where I would just get a feeling like, mm. and I would just, I just, Hey, how are you? And sometimes they'd respond immediately. Sometimes it would be weeks, days. And then as, as our relationship started to come closer and closer and closer together. And I think they started to trust my checking in. They admitted to me later that like every time you had, a feeling to check in would check in. I'd always be like, even though I might not respond, I'd always be like, how did you know? Like, so I think trusting just those, if you have a feeling to just, and sometimes it might be, Hey, I was just thinking about you. Like it's just a simple way to check in on people. Yeah. And not, and not underestimating that. I think, I mean, I've had some people that have been like, I don't want to bother you, but it's like, no, like sometimes that's, that is like the life raft that they get that day. Of- well, and I think sometimes people make it awkward because they do, it becomes like, Hey, I don't want to bother you. I'm just checking in. Are, you know, like, okay, erase all of that. Just don't do any of that. Hey, I was thinking about you. And it creates this real opening for whatever. Like, like right. you said, thank you. That might be the response you get back. You yeah. might get nothing back. Or you might be like, wow, I can't believe you sent me this today. Like, yeah, I'm actually really struggling. And assume, if you want to talk about it. <laughs> assume that it brought value. Like if you don't hear anything back, assume that it brought value to that person. Yeah, that's why that's why I shared that is because I was like, there's days like. Hey. I, I actually had a friend too when we were still in the thick of it that she would send me these beautiful text messages and then she would end with saying, you don't don't respond. No like you don't respond. have no need to respond. Like I just wanted you to know I love you. And so even like again that offloading of responsibility because I do think sometimes people are worried that like I don't want to overwhelm them or I don't want to bother them and it's like 
I, I was reading in my grad program, something, one of the researchers said, like, people are always worried that you're going to like, remind them of this like tragedy that happened, but like, you will never be reminding them that the tragedy happened. Like they will always know that a tragedy happened. And so I think realizing that in your brain of like, Oh, I'm not going to like, yeah, I'm not, not going to mess them something. up because like, it's always. Well, it's the same there. thing with people not intervening with somebody who's suicidal, right? You, you, people don't want to like trigger, you know, the act, but the reality is they're living in it. You're not triggering anything. If anything, your act of reaching out is getting them further away from doing anything dangerous. And yeah, there, there's always value, even though it might to you seem like such a small thing. Yeah. Can you guys speak for just a minute? This has been remarkable and like, so, so useful for me. And Chris and I have been silently weeping. over yeah, here. I'm like, what the, who are the podcast hosts that didn't bring <laughs> tissues and Kleenex to this? I, I never knew about Maybe you told us that first night at your house. I, you, I know you shared some like amazing things about Griff and, and the whole story, but I didn't. I don't know that I heard the hit, that he passed away on March fourth, and that and that like sentiment, the sentiment of like, hey, let's march forth. What would you say? Because we've spoken a lot about how to show up for people in grief. What would you say to those families who are in grief about marching forth? Like maybe the resilience or the such a like beautiful question. Yeah, I I I would say that it's all okay. Like it sucks. It's terrible. None of it's okay. Like what happened to you is the worst. And I think it's, it's okay that, I mean, I guess I'll share from my own experience, like that I get in the shower to go to work and three hours later, I'm still in the shower getting ready for work that I was supposed to be at two hours ago. And it's okay. And it's and, and okay is like a bad word to use because it's not like everything's going to be okay. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that like punching a hole in your wall, it's okay. Punch the hole of the wall, you know, like, like you may feel like you become a bad parent because maybe you're not living up to the standard that you have for yourself. You're going through stuff like, and it sucks it's okay that you're doing things at a limited capacity, I guess. I don't know. And like, do what you need to do. Like I went and got this big old tattoo on my arm, like, and I would regularly sit in the shower for hours on end and not reach out to the people that I probably needed to reach out to. I needed, I felt like I needed to be alone. The day we got home from the hospital, I grabbed a surfboard and just, paddled for four hours and that's what I needed to do. And I, I don't know that there's like a right thing for people. You know, I, I think that, you know, there are always people there to support you, but I think it's important to acknowledge that it's okay to punch stuff. And, you know, the Norton's Natalie got out all her ceramic dishes and let my kids throw them off her roof and smash them. And, you know, I think it's, it's okay to break stuff or it's okay to, you know, withdraw and sit in your shower. I, I, I don't know. I love that question because I feel like, uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm like, just 
that's been one of the hardest things I think is grieving with people you love because you all do it differently. And I think that's been honestly, actually like one of the more (laughs) challenging things is drowning with your family. I mean, like I'm drowning. And then I look at Chris and I think, oh, he's also drowning. And then, and I feel like you could write a textbook for every single one of my kids on how they have grieved because they've grieved so differently. Even you and I. And that's what I was going to say. Like Chris and I have been so different. And I feel like that the initial six months was very, very, very hard. I mean, there's no surprise that like losing a child it, it ends in divorce, like an outrageous amount of time because there were times when I'm a, I am a crier. I cry every single day. I was just thinking yesterday, I was driving, like, I don't think that I've got a day and not cried. And, um, and that's like, I, that's like what I need to do. And then Chris, I don't, he's not necessarily a crier. Like he, he wants to like go and surf. Like he wants to go be in the water. He wants to like get his thoughts together. He wants to be alone. And I'm like, I want to like emote. I want to do all the talking. I want to do all of, I want to talk to you about all the feelings. I want to do all of the things And I think that was actually very like polarizing to feel like Like she was feeling alone. We watched this exact same train wreck and yet how we're going to grieve is going to be so opposite and not have that tear us apart. Yeah. Um, Cause I felt like I wanted to be alone. Like that the only time I felt like I could genuinely grieve was by myself and literally the opposite i like want to like crawl inside of his skin like we want to do this together with you and so i think the question of like how do you show up for like people that are going through it with you i think you have to have like a very wide birth like a very wide amount and therapy and therapy everyone everyone needs therapy everyone go to therapy first of all everyone go to therapy that should be like number one of all the steps but I think create space like for like acknowledge that other people are going to grieve differently than you and make sure that you have the space for it. Right. Because once I knew that, okay, she needs me for her grief. Like I knew those were moments where I needed to suck it up and be there and, and go through that. But she also knew that like I needed time to disappear and be by myself. Um, Which can be super, super isolating. Yeah, right? because so, if I'm doing that, but she doesn't acknowledge it, and I'm not acknowledging that she needs me, then... And then just, I and up. I think it can be... It's, it's so weird when you go through such a, like, tragic event with someone, and then it's almost like... Like, it just blows up everything, and you're all just trying to, like, do this disoriented, like, walk back to each other, and then it's like how he wants to process, how he wants to deal with things was really, really isolating to me and, and really felt where I'm like, how is this not hurting you? And a lot of times that would be my question to him. Like, how are you not hurting? And he's like, Oh, I'm, I'm excruciatingly hurting and realizing like, Oh, okay. To me in my head, like I would come home from a day and just tell him like, I just had such a hard day. Like I, and I'm like sobbing. And telling him about X, Y, Z. And he's like, oh yeah, that happened to me this week too. And I'm like, you never, you never told me that. Like I, and, and, and so that was a big thing for us, like willing to be like super, super vulnerable and communicating with each other because I'm like, I need you to talk to me. Chris is just like, he wants to like be so focused and aware of like, he takes all accountability for himself. And so he wants to like be very, 
like, I don't know, accountable for everything. I am just so like, I want this to be a group effort. Like I want us all to mourn together and like tell each other every thought, every second, every, and, and so then I'd be like telling him all these things that I'm having a hard time with. And he's like, Oh yeah, a few days earlier. And that was like, so heartbreaking to me because I'm like, why aren't you telling me these things? Like I need to feel like I am involved in your grief process too, because otherwise I just feel so alone. There's literally no one in this world that is mourning the loss of this child as deeply as I am than you. But yeah, if you're going to do this kind of lone ranger style all by yourself, then I am now also alone. And like, I don't want to do this alone. So I think for us and sincerely, I know as a therapist, it sounds ridiculous to say you should go to therapy, but for us, we saw it, it as such a strengthening thing for our children, even too, because they were able to kind of like exhale and like lay their weapons down, you know, their shields, their armor of like protection down and just have like kind of this safe place. But then I don't know for spouses that are grieving specifically loss of a child. I just want to like grab them and, and just like hold them and say like, just like keep talking to each other, keep coming back to each other, keep choosing each other because this can and will rip you apart. And there is no one else in the world that is grieving the way that as deeply as you are, even if it's the complete opposite. I don't think that we could be, we could grieve more opposite. And yeah. initially it was like, you have to have heartbreaking to me that he was not grieving the way that I am. And I didn't see it as grief. I saw it as like isolating. I felt like he just wanted to be alone. And I, and I'm like, why won't you like, trust me with your pain? Like, why won't you like, let me be part of that. And then realizing like his grief has nothing to do with me. And my grief has nothing to do with him. Like hit the way that he chooses to do this. Isn't an attack on me or a way that he's mm-hmm. shoving me away. I know I could talk about this forever because, and then even with, again, each of our kids knowing and seeing that like, they're each so different. My oldest is just like me. Our second is just like him. And then our youngest was just so like, she, it was like, she wanted to be busy. Like she couldn't stay busy enough. Cause if she stopped being busy, she would just fall apart and just sob at all times. And so I don't, it's, it's funny, right? Over we talking and saying like, Oh, if people are grieving, you should reach out to them. You should, you should show up for them, show up for them, but then to show up for someone when you are also also drowning and you're looking over there and being like, wait, can you help me up? And they're like, well, no, I'm also drowning. Sorry. Like you got to, you got to yeah. figure this out and I think, is, is excruciating. I think that yeah. that is like insult to injury. You have this massive thing happen and then to have to figure it out with your partner is that's why I say like, just give them a wide berth and don't stop talking to each other. Don't stop talking yeah. to each other. Because there are times that I could have like interpreted Chris's behavior as like he does, or I'm I'm the only one sad about this. He's not crying. He doesn't. He's not crying. So he obviously isn't sad. I'm. I don't. I haven't stopped crying for six months, and so obviously I'm more sad. And then realizing like, oh, oh, he's so sad, and he's not crying, and he's so sad, and he's alone. Like it's it still can be the same thing, but they can be they can show up in very different ways, and just being willing to. Yeah, acknowledge that. the differences, but maintain communication. It's amazing. I could talk to you guys for hours. I, there's so many more questions I want to ask, and I'm sensitive to your guys' time, Chris and Taylor. But yeah, I think I'll just share for me that yeah, I'm just really grateful that you guys came on, like that you 
trust us with your story and with Griff's story. And I'm really inspired by your story. I'm really inspired by Griff's story and Griff's life. And especially of this idea of like marching forth. And I just think like, like I can't stop thinking about the, the last day you guys got to have with Griff and like all day as a family. And then him telling you guys, you know, they loved you on the way home and, and, and just your decision, Chris, to like, no, we're going to take back our family. Like we're not, we're not doing this the way that everyone tells us we should, or we're supposed to. That requires a lot of courage. And I just think it's really inspiring. And I hope other families in that hear this, like whatever your situation is. And it's so funny because Melissa and I talk like that is our mission with, with family brand is to inspire courage and families to take back their family, whatever that looks like to you and really live life on your terms. And I think what a blessing Griff was in not, I mean, Griff was a massive blessing to you in a sense, like hundreds and thousands of people, but in that way specifically, like the way Griff lived his life and and wanted to be so free is what had you guys probably realize like, no, we're going to live our lives differently. It was Griff who inspired that, right? Like it was Griff who inspired all the international travel. And like, that's just really profound. So I really acknowledge you guys for, yeah, just sharing what you've shared here today. And I'm inspired to even have more courage in taking back our family and just being a family. That has been really beautiful. Everything you, you shared. So, so um, just for me personally, like that, I loved everything you said about how just showing up for people doesn't have to look a certain way. It's just really like, what do you, what are you feeling in the moment? Like what, yeah, just doing what is in, within your heart and that's all okay. And the way you want to grieve, like it's all, it's all okay. Those are some of my big takeaways um, from today. Is there anything, you know, last parting words you'd want to add? I was going to just say, when you were talking about March 4th, I think, and taking back our family, I mean, we talked a lot extensively about what that meant while Griff was alive. And I think after he passed away, I mean, with the pandemic, we definitely were like, we're not going to do it like this. Like, and so we, and we, our kids again, were just grieving so differently that we decided to go, go to the mainland. We bought like a 15 seater van and turned it into essentially a house on wheels. And cause we just, I wanted to like gather my little chicks. I wanted to like gather them and like say like, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to do this grieving thing. And we're going to like stare each other in the eyes. And like, we're going to scream and yell and fight and punch the holes in the walls. We're going to do all of it. But we're not, we're going to do it right here. Like I want you to do this in front of me. Like we're, we're going to show up for each other. And like, it was not always pleasant. It was like these kids just like grieving and raging. And, but we, I felt this need to like take back our family again and be like, we're not going to do this on like the terms of like lockdown and being stuck and like being told like how to do this. But I wanted to just like gather our kids and like look them in the eyes while they did this grieving thing. And, and the March 4th thing, I mean, I felt like that again and again, and we would talk about that all the time on our trip. Like we're, we're going to do this and it's not going to be fun, but I want to like watch you wrestle this and I'm not going to like push you away. I don't want to like be distracted by other things in the world. I don't want to like numb, numb out and stay in Hawaii and just like ignore each other and just kind of like do this dazed. I want to like wrestle with each other and like no one else we would tell our kids like all the time, like no one else is more important than just us right here. Like this, these are the people that are important to us. And I feel like we spent this last year, like with the March 4th thing, 
of like consistently reminding ourselves again and again, like this is, this is what we're doing. We're, we're marching forth. And even in the way, the very last hour that Griff was alive, when they took him off life support, like he was doing great until literally the last, he was, he took him off life support and nothing happened. And he was like that for almost an hour. And then I finally, and all the, my, our two big boys were there. Our daughter wanted nothing to do with it. And we're all kind of just like draped over him. And I finally like picked him up and just wanted to like hold him. And I finally just told him like, you did such a good job. Like, we love you so much. And, and it's okay. We're going to be okay. And like, and then I mean, seconds. within, yeah, it was boom, 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 boom. And he didn't leave until like, we said those words. And then I remember like looking at, like I'm holding his body and looking at my other kids and being like, okay, then that has to be true. Like we just told him and like, he stayed, there was zero reason. They were told us like, he's going to die immediately after you take him off life support. So I have everything to super ready. And like, he didn't leave until he knew until we said the words, like we are going to be okay. And so I feel like I've continued thinking of that through this last year. Like, nope, we promised him like, this is so awful. And like, I'm so devastated. And like, we promised like, we're going to be okay. So showing up for each other and our family in that way of like marching forth. And like, we promised him, like we, we, we already said it. We already said that like together we're going to be okay. So we're not going to let this family thing dissolve because we all are so shattered. So just wanted to add that in if like, I just felt like we talked a ton about what it meant to us to kind of take back our family while he was alive. But even after he died, I feel like we did it a very non-conventional way, but it was like the most important thing to us became like these, these five people then find the rest of the world can do whatever it needs to do, but we need to just like huddle down and just be us and like rage this grief out together and, and be okay because we told Griffey that we would be. And I think just keep marching forth. Like sometimes marching is marching and sometimes it's dragging yourself, but like, keep, keep going. You know, it's, it's worth it to keep going. And your family's worth it. Like, I think for families that are grieving now or in the trenches now, like, I don't know. I'm like, lock the doors you get in a room. Like you should just like do it with each other. Like, rage through that together and that it's like you said like it's okay whatever you need to do is fine but I even wanted that I even want my kids to like do that in front of us like I wanted to have like these they're like meltdowns like I wanted to say like I'm not scared of like whatever is inside of you like no these monster like emotions I'm not afraid of that like you can rage there and I'm still gonna just hug you and love you and we're gonna march forth and like we're gonna be okay because you said so. <laughs> and we're not going to let go. And like, sometimes that means like you, you take some bruises, right? Like if someone's raging and you're just literally going to hold on to them, like that's not going to feel great all the time either. But then being like, Nope, still love you. I still love you. And we're going to force this and like be like deliberate about the love that I'm going to still show you when you're hurting and I'm hurting. I love this show up and March 4th. Well, thank you guys for coming on. Seriously. It's- it's been so special to have you and do it in person and Aww. yeah we really appreciate this a great setup <laughs> <laughs> thank you okay we'll see you guys next week 
Hey there, thanks for listening to today's episode. To show our appreciation, we want to offer you a free gift. We have an incredible online course you can get now by going to familybrand.com or by following the link in the show notes. And while you're there at familybrand.com, be sure to follow us on social media so that we can go on this journey together. Lastly, if this podcast has impacted you, we ask that you share it with another powerful family in your life and be sure to subscribe or follow so you never miss an episode. We will see you in the next episode.